it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, January 9th, 2023. Welcome to a new broadcast week here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm in New York today, back home to D.C. tomorrow. Thank you for tuning in. Every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you miss a moment, we've got a podcast each and every day as well. It is free of charge. It is on demand when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. G-U-Y-B-E-N-S-O-N-Show.com. You can also get our podcast wherever you get your free podcasts, including FoxNewsPodcast.com. Follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow, Twitter, and Instagram. We would like to welcome, as we begin this new week, a brand new Guy Benson Show radio affiliate. Joining our family is KFPW AM, 1230 in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Fort Smith Straight Talker will be on their weekdays in the evening, and we are just delighted to welcome them into the fold as we continue to grow together. Digitally, on the podcast side, on our stations and affiliates, we are grateful for that growth. And it's all because of you guys. We work hard to put on a good show, and we hope that you all enjoy it. And based on a lot of these numbers and results, increasing numbers of you are enjoying it. And that's very exciting and very much gratifying for us here at the team. Here's our lineup here on today's program. Brandon Judd of the National Border Council will be here later in the hour to react with some specificity and detail to President Biden's extremely belated visit to the southern border yesterday. I was on the big show Saturday and Sunday on Fox News Channel co-hosting in the 5 o'clock Eastern hour over the weekend, and this was our lead story or one of them both days. We talked a lot about the border and the border crisis and the border visit, especially during yesterday's show, because Biden was on the ground while we were live on the air. And we will have much more to say about that and questions to ask Brandon Judd about it coming up later this hour. Carol Markowitz will join us in the next hour. Randy Weingarten, one of the top teachers union bosses in the country, is lying again and trying to gaslight people into forgetting what she and her ilk did to children in this country over COVID. Carol is having none of it. We will get her response to Randy Weingarten. Also in our middle hour of three, Martha McCallum, our good friend and colleague here at Fox News. In fact, she's on her show, The Story, right now. She will get off the air and then hustle up to TV. We'll have her, or from TV to radio, I should say. We'll have have her here in studio to discuss a number of issues. My guess is we might get into the Harry and Meghan stuff and the royal family because she covers that pretty closely. And I know those headlines are ubiquitous recently. So perhaps if we have time with Martha, we'll delve into that a bit. And in our final hour, Bill Hemmer of America's Newsroom, Fox News fame, 
one of our all-star anchors here. He will also be in studio as we have a very packed lineup today. And among other things, I'd like to talk about DeMar Hamlin, the Buffalo Bills, and some of the really miraculous developments. I mean, he's been released from the hospital. That news is just breaking now. This recovery has been incredible. Given what happened a week ago tonight, Bill had a fascinating interview this morning on TV about this. He's a big NFL guy. In fact, he's a Bengals fan. Bengals were playing the Bills when this happened. So that and more coming up with Bill Hemmer. With that said, as we've set the path ahead on today's show, that's our lineup. Because it was such an overwhelming focus of our show yesterday, or I should say last week, you've probably heard the news already, but just in case you haven't, finally, 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 15 ballots deep, a Speaker of the House was elected late Friday night, heading into the wee hours of Saturday morning, The gavel was handed to the gentleman from California, and this was the official pronouncement from the House clerk. I was awake watching it live on C-SPAN because that's how I roll. Cut 20. The Honorable Kevin McCarthy of the state of California, having received a majority of the votes cast, is duly elected Speaker of the House of Representatives. Big cheer from the Republicans in the chamber. Some of that was probably some jubilation among his supporters. Some of it was probably just relief and catharsis that it was over. After four days and 15 ballots and lots of drama and things nearly coming to blows earlier that evening on Friday after we were off the air here, we felt like there was some real movement. We made that point. You saw the vote starting to move. The question was, what would happen to the remaining holdouts? Who would they persuade? Would they get various people back into town in time to vote? And ultimately, they finally got their ducks in a row. There were still some holdouts. They voted present. That's how they were able to make this math work. And it was actually kind of interesting because we took a lot of calls from you in the audience on Friday. What was your message to the holdouts? And the overwhelming sentiment was, you've made your point. It's time to move on. It's time to get this House majority underway. And it seems like that was able to sink in. And that is exactly what happened hours after we went off the air. We got off the air, what, 6 o'clock on Friday evening? And by roughly 1 a.m. or so, it's kind of a blur, Speaker McCarthy was elected. Now, he spoke... Just after Hakeem Jeffries spoke, that's the Democratic leader, the election denier who was unanimously supported by his party throughout the entire saga, he gave a very long, very partisan speech leading up to his introduction of McCarthy, which I thought was kind of inappropriate. And especially given how much time had already gone into the votes and the ballots and everything, it was, you know, Friday into Saturday when Under normal circumstances, this would have been resolved on Tuesday. It just felt like not the right time or place for what Hakeem Jeffries did. His conference loved it. I saw some progressives on social media high-fiving over it, but it just felt off to me. Then McCarthy gave 
his basically his acceptance speech, and he began on a bit of a self-aware, light note in Cut 21. That was easy, huh? I never thought we'd get up here. Thank you, Minority Leader Jeffries. Hakeem, I've got to warn you. Two years ago, I got 100% of the vote from my conference. Pretty good line. He was much more magnanimous toward Jeffries than Jeffries was toward him and toward the Republican Party, but Democrats in the minority now. Democrats of the opposition party, and I guess Hakeem Jeffries wanted to signal that he is going to do a lot of fighting. And there might be a lot of infighting, frankly, among the Republicans as well. That is one of the themes that we'll be watching over the next two years, perhaps something that we will uh, address and ask Martha McCallum about coming up in our next hour. So that now is behind us. There's going to be a battle over the rules package and then legislation moving forward. I mean, that might have been just kind of a high-profile appetizer of full meals to come. I guess we'll find out soon enough. Meanwhile, as I mentioned, President Biden went down to the border for the first time. And when I say the first time, I really mean the first time. Not the first time since he's become president. It's not the first time since he was in the White House because he was vice president for eight years. This is, to our knowledge, really the first time this man has done an actual border visit in his entire political career. And his political career has spanned, what is it, like five decades now? He has been entrenched as part of the Washington machine for the better part of his life. And this is the first time he has finally seen fit to actually go and look at a problem that has been longstanding. Yes, there have been issues for all of those decades. But never worse than it is right now because of his policies, because of his, I would say, intentionally failed policies. And for a guy who has tried to build his political brand, especially in the last 10, 15 years as Mr. Empathy, he's the empathetic politician, the absolute lack of empathy evinced by Joe Biden about the crisis at the border, which is a humanitarian crisis. It is a lethal crisis. Record numbers of illegal immigrants dying on their way into this country, incentivized to come here by him and his policies. Law enforcement officers being killed. Law enforcement officers killing themselves because of the incredible, or at least fed by the incredibly low morale fueled by this chaos. It's a national security crisis. You look at the number of people, the record-shattering number of people that we know of that have been caught, setting aside anyone who hasn't been caught, the gotaways, who are on the terrorist watch list, a public safety crisis. Members of criminal cartels, gangs, known convicted felons, murderers, rapists, people who have harmed children. The number of those folks who have been swept up, who have gotten caught, again, not mentioning at all the tens of thousands of known gotaways, the record-breaking gotaways under this president's watch. 
And then, of course, the national sovereignty crisis. We're supposed to be a nation of laws. We're supposed to have a process to go through if you want to immigrate to this country, which is a great honor. It's not a right. It's an honor and a privilege. We have a system. It is being abused and being made a mockery of every day on a scale the likes of which we've never seen before. This is a multi-pronged crisis. And this president has barely and scarcely been even able to pretend that he cares about it. I got into this a little bit earlier on TV, on America's Newsroom, with Jessica Tarloff. She said the same thing on our show last week. Oh, she thinks Biden has always cared. I said, well, if he was caring about this, he was extremely private about that caring because he did not he did not lift a finger to do anything to actually ameliorate the problem, which he could have done with several strokes of a pen. And he hasn't done it for political reasons for two years running. And now because some members of his own party, including members of the news media, which are generally members of his party, have started to focus on the problem because it's glaring enough and creating Democrat on Democrat anger and finger pointing and dysfunction, they finally decided, okay, I guess it's time to send the man down there for some photo ops. And I hope it wasn't just a photo op, right? He did meet with some of these border patrol agents, probably not the same exact agents that he smeared on the fake whipping incident, I am hopeful, because I was saying he should have gone there for the better part of two years, although I've been expressing the skepticism all along, would it just be a stage-managed proposition of box-checking? Would there actually be anything useful that would happen down there? And it sounds like he didn't see any migrants. (laughs) That's the other thing. The center that he went to didn't have migrants there, so he clearly got a distorted and sanitized version of this, which is, I guess, to be expected— political optics and all of that. My hope is that while he was down there talking to some of the men and women on the front lines and others, that he might have, even if in passing, learned something or gotten a little taste of the problem and how it affects those communities down at the border every single day. Maybe, maybe, maybe he learned something. Maybe not. What I think the White House is hoping to do is to say, oh, look, he's been there. We did it. We did the thing. And they're counting on their allies and their friends in the news media to write pieces like, listen to this headline from Reuters. I read this over the weekend, and they've now changed the headline and the story. But this is what they published at Reuters. Headline, Biden to visit Mexico border in migrant push, but Republicans are his biggest wall. And the framing of the story was how Republicans taking over the House will really block any effort at reform or change or fixing the system. It says that Republicans, quoting from the story now, their newly assumed control of the House of Representatives essentially blocks prospects for any legislative fixes, leaving Biden with few good options. And the story writes that the thin Republican majority in the House, quote, gives the party's hardliners greater clout and little hope for compromise. Like this is a Republican problem. Absolutely shameless. The story quoted in its first publication, three Democrats, zero Republicans, talks about how this is a problem that has bedeviled both parties, both sidesism, just pitiful propaganda. And this is what Democrats count on. 
And by the way, it's not true that Biden is left with few good options. Maybe there aren't legislative fixes that he wants to see because Republicans will insist on enforcement. But he doesn't have to wait for Congress. He can just re-implement like day one tomorrow, if he wants to remain in Mexico. That policy, which was a Trump policy, which was a successful policy, that would do wonders at stemming the tide. He won't do it because of politics. Oh, but Reuters tells us he has no good options because of those Republicans. That's the media environment that we're operating under. Which is why I think shows like this one are so important. To call that stuff out, to tell you the truth as we see it as best we can in an intellectually consistent and honest way. That's what we try. That's what we strive for here. And we were just getting started on this Monday. Quick break. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. As we continue on the Guy Benson Show, I want you to hear these statistics about the border crisis. Setting the stage for our conversation in the next segment with Brandon Judd, president of the National Border Council. Last fiscal year, in the first 100 days of last fiscal year, so October to January, there were roughly 518,000 illegal migrant encounters at the southern border. More than half, what, 518,000, more than half a million in that 100-day span, which was a record, a totally unacceptable record. This new fiscal year in the first 100 days, that number has swelled to over 718,000. It increased. It was already a record breaker. That number then went up by 200,000. I mean, it's just, it's almost unfathomable. 718,000 encounters in the span of three months. And we also know that the gotaways have exploded, the number of gotaways, known gotaways, and presumably unknown gotaways as well. President was finally bothered to go down there. He deigned to grace the border with his presence. Did he learn anything, and will anything really change? We'll ask Brandon Judd when we come back on The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. It's our online home. Podcast free when the show is over every day. With us now, Brandon Judd, president of the National Border Council. Brandon, good to have you back and welcome to the program. Good to be with you. Thank you. 
All right. I just want to start with your big picture reaction to President Biden's border visit yesterday. I know this was highly anticipated. People had been demanding it for two years. Uh, Now, finally, he's at least been down there. I know that there were a number of reasons to be skeptical or cynical about what would actually come out of this. What are your top line reactions? It was just politics. That's all it was. Unfortunately, he went down there to a sanitized uh, area. Uh, they they cleared out everything that was going on. He didn't get to see what was what was happening. And then on top of that, he went to the port of entry. We're not having issues at the port of entry. There are three major law enforcement components within CBP. You've got OFO, the Office of Field Operations. Those, they're the ones that operate at the port of entry. Then you've got the Border Patrol. We're the ones that operate between the ports of entry. And then you've got Air and Marine. Um, and they're the ones that, that fly um, our helicopters, drones, um, uh, aircraft, and then patrol the waters. He didn't even meet with Aaron Marine. He spent very, very little time with uh, Border Patrol, and he spent his va- the vast majority of the time at the port of entry. The port of entry is not where the problem is. That's not where we're seeing the issue. It's between the ports of entry. It's with the Border Patrol and AMO, yet he didn't even spend the time that was necessary to see it. And then on top of that, they cleared everything out. Uh, that's that's a problem. When, when that happens, you know there's not going to be the political will to, to implement the policies, programs, and operations that are necessary to end this chaos. Well, we knew that already because of their policies, and they're not going to come off of some of these failures because for political reasons they feel like they can't. My hope was that even if by accident, even if they tried to insulate the guy as much as possible from any of the harshest realities down there, that – they would be unavoidable to some extent. And someone or someones would have a serious conversation with him about what they're experiencing day in and day out. And whether that had a lasting impression or triggered any sort of changes at all, you know, maybe not, but he needed to hear it. Do you think there's a chance some of that happened? I did see a few images uh, images of him, the president, standing with Border Patrol agents in uniform. Is there maybe potentially... Some evidence that someone told him some hard truths while he was on the ground? Governor Abbott gave him some hard truths, but nobody else gave him that. And, and the reason why I say that is because those individuals that were in uniform, those are high-level managers. Um, those people are subject to um, um, removal or movement from their, their current positions if they say something that is not politically correct. And that's, that's the problem. When you look at and – and everybody talks about how the FBI has become political. But the truth is, is that every organization within the federal government has be- become political, whether that's the IRS, the FBI, the Border Patrol. They're, they're, they've all become political because their highest-level managers, they're subject to being taken out of their position and moved to another position if they don't tow um, an administration's line. And that's the problem with that. But, yes, Governor Abbott absolutely gave it to him straight. What we were hoping for, what I was hoping for, I was hoping that that things weren't going to be cleared out, that, that the mainstream media – because if he, when he went down there, he brought the mainstream media with him. Um, and I was hoping that they were going to get a clear sense of what was going on, that they were going to see firsthand what was happening. Instead, they got the the, the rosy picture of, of what the border should look like, but it's not what it looks like on a regular basis. Guys, they went as far as as put as doubling up the number of agents 
that were on the border the night before and through his visit. Um, that just uh, gave the media this sense that, oh, look, everything is perfectly fine on the border. Um, this is what we've been telling you from, from the get-go. And that's the problem. That's how um, the oftentimes the mainstream media will cover for, for this administration. So what I'm hearing is there really weren't rank-and-file people? Because, I, I mean, we know that Alejandro Mayorkas got an earful from some Border Patrol agents at closed-door meeting. Former CBP official, uh, top official, the, the commissioner also. There was some leaked audio of that where rank-and-file members were really angry and telling it like it is. You know, I didn't want anyone to be dis- disrespectful to the president, but there can be real, sometimes harsh truths delivered in a way that might be a tiny bit jarring for someone who's insulated and surrounded by yes-men like politicians sometimes can be. It sounds like maybe that didn't happen and the people who were selected to meet with him were selected for that reason. So he wouldn't get that type of feedback so that it would be kind of more airbrushed and and sanitized and that sort of thing. And, And, you know, it's fine for Governor Abbott to tell him the truth, but I think it's less powerful, even if it's absolutely accurate, coming from an elected Republican official who could be accused fairly or unfairly of playing politics himself. It'd be more effective, I think, hearing it from the men and women on the ground who so often are unable to do their jobs because they're basically pencil pushers trying to uh, you know, process this massive crush of people. Yeah, he refused to meet with the rank and file, and, and nobody would have been disrespectful. You know, the only the, the only reason that the agents were willing to you know turn their back on my orcas is because he flat out told them, "Tell me exactly what you think. Tell me exactly what you want to hear." Um, the, the president of the United States wouldn't have done that, and, and agents are going to respect the office, even if they don't respect the person. They're going to respect the office of the presidency, and they wouldn't have they wouldn't have not have been disrespectful. But he refused to do that. He wouldn't listen to the rank and file. He didn't meet with the rank and file, and that's one of the problems. So he got a completely sanitized version of what is going on on the border. Yeah, which does not bode well and is rather inauspicious for any meaningful progress. Before we get to some of the new policy tweaks that were rolled out last week by the administration, I do want to ask you about that I'd say respectful but serious confrontation where Governor Abbott down in Texas, who apparently was only invited to greet the president on the tarmac to actually be there in El Paso the day before. It's like a very 11th hour thing from the White House. Like, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, if the governor wants to be there, this is when we're landing. Abbott, of course, showed up. He hand delivered a letter, which I thought was a superb letter that while it definitely was blunt and candid in some ways it laid out the problem it was only confined to one page so it wasn't on and on rambling there were a number of bullet points offered in terms of solutions like putting remain in mexico for example back in place which i mentioned earlier i mean i know the critics of republicans and people who don't like greg abbott or people who are in favor of this crisis or want to look the other way will say this is just his own version of political posturing but having Watch this problem very closely and having read that letter, I think that was a truth to power letter with the emphasis on truth. That was my analysis of it. Yeah, so when you look at what needs to be done, um, whether you call it politics, whether you call it being blunt, whatever you want to call it, those bullet points would secure the border. 
That and, and that's the main thing that we have to look at. So regardless of what his ulterior motive might have been, and I don't think that he did have an ulterior motive. I think that he truly wants the border secure. But regardless of what you think his motive might have been, if you look at those points, those points would in fact secure the border. There's other things that this administration could do. But what's what's really frustrating and upsetting is when politics come into the play. When you listen to uh, to Congresswoman um, Jay Powell, when when she says that that uh, Republicans continue to use migrants as a political football. That's not true. Um, she refuses to look at this and say this is an illegal immigration crisis. It's not legal. Nobody cares. No, we, we all support legal immigration. It's the illegality that comes with it and the, the cartel run and the drugs that come. So when you yeah. look at what Governor Abbott gave to him, it was it was spot on. Now, I will say, and I'm, I'm always going to give credit where credit is due. Um, the president, when he gave his press conference ahead of the border visit, when he gave his press conference, all he did was repackage the six pillars that failed miserably. But then DHS came out, and they said that they were going to implement a transit ban. Now, I will tell you that if they implement that transit ban, that will be a game changer. That is something that they could do that would end this crisis tomorrow. The problem is, and the reason why I don't think that they're serious in this, is they could have done it by executive order. And if they do it by executive order, it goes into effect the moment um, the ink dries on the paper. But by go- doing it through rule, now you have to open it up for, for public discussion. And you have to address the public discussion. Uh, you know, that takes months. If they're able to implement the, tra- the, the transit ban by rule within a year, I would be very, very surprised. So that's why uh, when you look at this, that's why I think that what they're doing is politics rather than wanting to actually come up with solutions. I did see a quote from Mayorkas, the DHS secretary, accusing Republicans of exploiting the migrants. And, of course, the people who are exploiting the migrants are the cartels. And the cartels, who are also profiting handsomely off of all of this, uh, they are being empowered by these failing policies. It's just like this amazing almost inversion of truth from the administration they constantly attack Republicans for political stunts and playing political games. What's actually happening at the border is not a stunt. It's not a game. It's real. And what Republicans are trying to do is draw attention to it and get the thing fixed. And we're nowhere close to it getting fixed. However, you mentioned the repackaging or sort of shuffling things around that the, the president announced last week. What do you make of that policy? Because I know you, you kind of seem like you hold a dim view of it overall. But it seems like they are now trying to expand an approach that they've taken with Venezuelan nationals specifically to nationals of three other countries as well, uh, including Cuba, if I'm not mistaken, and and a few others. And then they're also at the same time going to grant sort of mass parole uh, to to 30,000 people from each country. Is that annually? What is the new policy? And what practical impact could the new policy have, if any? So granting granting mass parole theoretically is legal. Um, you know, it's within the it's within the president's power. I'm not going to argue against anything that's legal. If they do something that's legal, that's within our laws. I, I have nothing to say about that. The problem is is 
all it does, when you look at the Venezuelans, when they opened up that program and said, okay, the Venezuelans can apply for parole, and if they don't, they're going to be expelled under Title 42. That was, that was well and good, um, but all the cartels did was replace the Venezuelan population with another population. And so while we saw the numbers drop for the first two days of the implementation of that, we just saw the numbers shoot right back up once the cartels adapted to the policy. You have got to enforce the laws uniformly. If you don't do that, if you don't have uniformity, you're going to have the cartels that are going to exploit the situation. So if you just say, okay, we're going to give this to Cubans, Colombians, um, Venezuelans, um, Haitians, then what the cartels are going to do is they're just going to go to another country and grab that population and start bringing them um, across. Because these cartels, they're a business. They're an illegal business, but they are a business. They're, in, they're, they're there to make money. That's what they're trying to do. And they are going to adapt to our policies. The only way you can address that is you have to uniformly yeah, enforce consistency. the Consistency. And, and yeah. you're right. Those, those are the – in addition to the Venezuelans now, it's Colombians, Cubans, Haitians as well – and they'll just be sort of shifting people around into different buckets, so to speak. And if you are someone who doesn't qualify for one of these mass paroles, which is capped at 30000 I think, per country per year, if I'm correct about that, and it only lasts for two years. And I know you didn't want to criticize that. I will because, number one, that's another incentive to come here illegally and hope that you can get caught up in one of these mass paroles. Secondly, the idea that anyone is going to – you know, count down the days with a tearaway calendar until two years expire, and it's like, okay, now I have to leave. That is, I think, in the vast majority of cases, not going to happen. So you'll have tons of uh, hundreds of thousands of new people in this country who came here through this quasi-legal main, means who will have very little incentive t- to leave at that point, and they will technically be be illegal at that point. It just doesn't seem workable or remotely sustainable, and we know that there are better offerings in terms of policy that are available that are just being deliberately ignored. I think that is fundamentally the problem. Then one other point on this, my understanding also, and correct me if I'm wrong, Brandon, if you are, let's say, a Venezuelan or a Haitian who isn't eligible for one of the mass paroles, now the incentive changes from you being part of a mass crossing where you then you know, surrender yourself to U.S. officials get processed and released into the country, you go from that model of illegal immigration to a different model where you just join the ranks or hope to join the ranks of the Godaways, which is a population, a group of illegal immigrants that has grown dramatically in the last couple of months in particular. You're going to have more people attempting to be Godaways, yes? No, absolutely, absolutely. And what you just said was was absolutely correct. The, the vast majority of the people that come here legally under a short period of time, they never leave the country. And there's two ways that they do that. They either abscond and just disappear into, the, into what President Obama termed the shadows of society, or they get married here in the United States. Now they have a sponsor for, for citizenship, or they have children here in the United States, which a judge then has to take that into consideration um, for in, during deportation proceedings. So, yes, there's so many ways to gain the system. And, and, and guy, what's really frustrating is that you can close those loopholes really easily. And they don't it, it want can to. Be done. It, no, no, they don't. And that's how you know this is politics. Yeah. So whenever you hear, whenever you hear the Democrats say, well, the Republicans are playing politics, no, look at the truth of it. Look at the Republicans' um, proposals. And if you break down the Republicans' proposals and you find loopholes, okay, then say that they're playing politics. But if, they're, if their proposals are actually going to shut down the border, give us a legal system, a, 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 a 
system that, that is uniformly um, implemented, that's not politics. What the, what the Democrats are doing is, in fact, politics. Yeah, it's pretty transparent, I would say. And we just witnessed something of a dog and pony show down at the border. And again, I'm holding out hope that maybe Biden saw or heard something that could inform his perspective in a way that's constructive. But I won't hold my breath in terms of policy changes that would be productive accordingly. And so on this goes, and we'll be covering it uh, in a very faithful and aggressive way here because someone has to. And part of that coverage will include Brandon Judd, president of the National Border Council. Brandon, thank you. Good to speak with you. Thank you. It's The Guy Benson Show. Back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on The Guy Benson Show. Glad you're here. You know, I wanted to fact check myself on something. Because as I said it, I was like, I'm not sure if that's exactly right. In our segment that just ended with Brendan Judd on this new Biden policy, I said that the nations were Cuba, the new nations, getting now the Venezuela treatment. Cuba, Haiti, and Colombia. It's not Colombia, it's Nicaragua, point one. That's the third country. And it's not 30,000 who are eligible from each country for a mass parole per year. It is 30,000 eligible for a mass parole per month, per month, per country. 30,000 per country every month under this program. I think that might be an incentive to try to become one of those parolees where you get like a two-year Free entry into the U.S. as long as you pinky square to uh, pinky swear to leave two years on. Uh, I think that might be exactly the wrong kind of incentive. And for anyone that it might deter, as Brandon Judd said, the cartels just work around it and game the system knowing the new rules. So, I mean, it is just not a serious approach at all. I think that's a fair way to put it. What they want is like, you know, flashbulbs and headlines, new approach. Biden cracks down. Biden offers this. But unfortunately, it's a repackaging of more of the same. And the same is a national disgrace. Another hour of the Guy Benson Show on its way. Carol Markowitz joins us straight ahead. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Welcome to a new hour of the Guy Benson Show, our middle hour of three, between three and six p.m. Eastern. That's where we originally air that time slot. Of course, we have a free podcast every day on demand as well. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Everything right there for you. Also for the podcast, FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us at Guy Benson Show on Twitter, also on Instagram. You can follow me personally on those same platforms at Guy P. Benson. Still to come on today's show, Martha McCallum in studio, Bill Hemmer in studio. First, a Fox News alert. The Dow down today, 112 points at the close, finishing up at 33,517. Joining us now, Carol Markowitz, columnist of the New York Post and foxnews.com. And Carol, it is great to talk to you. Hi, Guy. Thanks so much for having me. 
I was eager to get you on the show as soon as I saw some of the tweets yesterday from Randy Weingarten of the National Federation or the whatever it is, the American Federation of Teachers, the top union boss. And she is really working overtime these days to deny that she and her crowd did exactly what they did during the pandemic when it comes to school closures, accusing their critics of lying. She, for example, tweeted this. This is a lie talking about school closures. We put out reopening plans. I went on TV and did op-eds talking about how to reopen. We worked with many to make it happen. What we asked for was to open safely, to protect educators and students from the virus. Disagree on policy, but stop with the lies, she said, lecturing her critics. Meanwhile, Carla Hernandez, who's a union boss, teacher's union boss down in Florida. She was Charlie Kiss. Charlie Crist's running mate uh, in his failed gubernatorial bid, I mean, spectacularly failed. Uh, She was the running mate, and she was sort of piling on with this. She said, in Florida, we gave parents the option of bringing kids in or keeping them remote, and for a long time, the majority of parents kept their kids remote. We kept kids safe by ensuring proper protocols for a safe return. Hashtag teachers are heroes. And I know that the responses to Carla Hernandez were overwhelming. So help us correct the record here, as so many people have done already on Twitter responding to these tweets. Uh, You know, Carol, you hear the revisionism that is actively underway. We were always for reopening. We actively were pushing reopening. We just made sure it was safe. Uh, What actually happened? Because I can't believe we have to remind folks of this, but people sometimes have short attention spans. And I think the way to fight misinformation is to tell the truth. So you have the floor to do that. Yeah. So there's so many lies here. It's hard to know where to start. But for the first the first part of that with Carla, um, I our family had done a test run in Florida in January of 2021. We got a vacation rental and we sent our kids to school because New York City schools were completely closed. Um, so we lived in Florida for almost five months at that point, and it was a temporary time. But I know how many kids were in school and how many weren't, because unlike New York, the teachers taught to both the kids in the classroom and the kids at home. So even in the schools that opened part time in New York, you didn't have the option of having the same teacher, basically, as, as your in, in-person classmates would. So here, I knew that my kids went to school in person in Florida, and they had, like, two kids in their class on remote at home. And that's around the breakdown that I saw personally in Florida at that time. So that's a giant lie. The parents didn't choose to go in person. They overwhelmingly did. And then Randy Weingarten. Oh, by I the mean, way, just, just the quickly, idea, on, yeah. quickly on Florida. Mm-hmm. Carla Hernandez and the teachers unions in Florida sued DeSantis when he gave parents the choice to come back in person. And she's now trying to pretend like they were the great champions of this and they were all about choice. And, you know, so parents could make decisions about safety. No, DeSantis made that choice for them. They fought him legally and lost. And it's just crazy to see her trying to take credit for the progress and the correct policies that DeSantis implemented in that state over her hysterical objections. She hired a hearse to drive around representing all the dead people that would die because of this. Of course, that was totally anti-science. And now it seems like she's just trying to like co-opt the policy that she was one of the top faces in Florida of fighting against at the time. That's right. 
Yeah. So, I mean, all of that is 100% correct. And uh, she was entirely against reopening. So the idea that they gave parents a choice, which, by the way, is also not a great thing. Had they told parents, no, the kids should be in school and it'll be safe, just like DeSantis did, the parents would have listened and and sent their kids to school. So if parents did stay home because they were kept their kids home because they were afraid, they were afraid because of people like Carla Hernandez. And that was specifically why they, they kept their kids home. So that her hysteria had consequences. And then as for Randy Weingarten, she fought school reopening every step of the way. And as late as November 2020, when Florida had already reopened and was doing a fantastic job at having kids in person all day, every day, and New York was on this ridiculous guy. I cannot stress to you how ridiculous this model was. My kids were in school. My sons were in school two days, one week, three days. The next week, my daughter was completely remote. Um, and and this was what, when was this? Was, what were the dates? And this was the the school year 2020. So school year 2020 to 2021. Okay. Um, it was complete. Either you were in two days to three days a week, or you were completely remote. Um, so it depended on the school. And Randy Weingarten pointed to this New York model as the way to go forward. And this is in November of 2020. Again, when schools had already been open for a while in Florida, and you could see the results, and you could see that it was safe for kids to be in school. And you know what the craziest part is? That we this is so much insanity that it's hard to get to all of it. But there's evidence that this part-time model in New York City actually spread more COVID because when the kids were not in school for those two to three days a week, it's not like they sat at home. Right. Parents have had to go to work. They had to find childcare. These kids dispersed throughout the whole city, and it was would have been safer for them to be with the same kids every day. Yeah, they were classroom. safer in schools. They, compared to writ large out in the community in terms of spread, being in a school was basically the safest place to be, to be because kids generally were overwhelmingly safe from severe COVID, and these were not vectors of transmission compared to and relative to the rest of society. We knew this pretty early on. We're talking about, you know, the fall of 2020. That was months into this. We had a lot of data from the U.S. and especially from abroad, and people like Randy Weingarten and Carla Hernandez and and that whole crowd, they were actively fighting against the science. In fact, Randy Weingarten had and pressured her teachers' union pressured the CDC to change the official science in such a way as to adhere with the political agenda and the so-called quote-unquote safety concerns, anti-science misinformation fueled, of the teachers' union. I mean, I know we talked about this in real time constantly. I just think it's revealing that they are lying so hard now while accusing other people of lying, and like it just gets under my skin, which is why, and I'm not even a parent, Yet I, I hope to be at some point. You are a parent of multiple kids. This has to be like, to use a a school uh, phrase, like nails on a chalkboard. Listening to these arsonists basically come back and say, "Oh no, we were the firefighters all along. You guys don't remember this rightly. Stop besmirching our good name." But that's the approach they're attempting. Right. It, it does. It kills me. I could become a full-time Randy Weingarten critic. And I just, I don't, I don't have the time for that. And I wish that some of the, you know, so-called mainstream media outlets would step up and do their job because she's outwardly lying. And imagine if it was a special interest group that was aligned with Republicans who harmed children so badly and didn't take responsibility and then pretended that they were somehow the defenders of those kids. 
we'd never hear the end of it from the New York Times and the Washington Post, et cetera, and we don't hear anything from them right now. And Randy Weingarten, the other thing, I mean, I can just go on and on about her forever, <laughs> but yes, she, she tried to have schools not open, even though CDC was moving in that direction of suggesting that they, schools could open because a six-foot rule made no sense and everybody knew that. In summer of 2021, so this is already going into the 2021-2022 school year, vaccines are out. Um, schools have been open in, in states like Florida and Iowa and Texas and other places throughout that whole year. They had the evidence. She tried to have schools not open in 2021. Summer of 2021, she gives numerous interviews where she still is saying that it's not safe and she's not sure and yeah. they don't know and they will, they, they'll have to see. Hedging and, and fear-mongering. is is just kills me. And yeah. by the way, there were no consequences for her. She and big government Big education, the bureaucracy got showered with hundreds of billions of dollars in the so-called rescue plan. And she is, as opposed to being persona non grata, she is like a celebrated member of the Democratic community. She was invited to like the, the state dinner at the White House recently with whoever it was, the French or the Australians, I forget which one it was. I mean, they are making very clear in the Biden administration, the Democratic Party, they are, in spite of everything, all in for Randy Weingarten and her mentality and voters, I guess, uh, were not as offended by it as they should have been uh, based on the outcome of the November elections. I mean, I think it cost Democrats a little bit. It certainly cost them in Virginia, but other stuff got in the way. And I think that's sort of the the frustrating one of the frustrating parts of this. And if we don't keep the fight alive, especially with them gaslighting this hard, then they will get away with it. And I'm just not willing to let that happen so long as I have a platform uh, and so long as you have a platform. I know that we're very much aligned on that point. I also want to mention this, Carol. I see that, and this is one of a number of districts doing this, Ann Arbor, Michigan, very a liberal progressive town. They have re-implemented a mask mandate coming out of winter break, not just because of COVID, but other ailments. They just want to normalize mask wearing for children. We know that there are real downsides for kids with no significant upsides for kids when it comes to mask wearing. And yet here comes this mandate. We talked about other places that were doing it right before Christmas as well. And of course, of course, the superintendent of those schools, a woman named Janice Kerr Swift, who implemented this mandate, was just photographed a few days ago accepting an award, smiling ear to ear among adults, no mask, of course, because this is how they roll. Uh, you, you just sort of wonder, is there is there among parents the energy to sustain opposition to this stuff? So I think it depends because I, I continue to say that the areas where this masking is happening is, of course, only in far left areas. And what ends up happening is cancel culture butts right up against this, where parents are afraid to speak out. They're afraid to say, my kid doesn't need it. I eat out at restaurants all the time. I'm living my life mask free. I'm way more in danger than my child is. And they're just afraid to say facts and truths. Um, I know I know this from my time in Brooklyn, that people would say something like that on a Facebook board and they'd get pummeled. Oh, just eaten um, alive. Eaten, so, yeah, no, I think that's right. Some Even if a silent majority feels a certain way, they don't want to get crushed by these very angry activists. And, you know, I don't want to call them Karens and reduce it to that. And, and by the way, other people who got sick of it, they moved. They moved like you did down to Florida and other places. So that's another phenomenon at play. We're on it on The Guy Benson Show. Carol Markowitz, always appreciate it. Talk soon. Back after this.
I'm Guy Benson. I saw this on my social media feeds. It's a story that I had heard about a little bit but hadn't paid much attention to. Then Senator Mike Lee had posted about it, and I guess he's been involved in this whole scenario. The Wall Street Journal has written a House editorial on the case of a detained American service member in Japan. Headline on this editorial is the U.S. Navy's stranded lieutenant. Harsh punishment after a tragic accident needs a bilateral solution. Here's the story. Japan's new defense strategy warns that Asia is facing the most challenging security environment since World War II. Tokyo and Washington have to work together to deter China, and Beijing would benefit from cracks in the alliance. So it's worth asking for Tokyo's help in mending a growing rift by returning a U.S. Navy lieutenant locked up in a Japanese prison. Here's the backdrop per the journal. Lieutenant Ridge Alconis, assigned to the guided missile destroyer USS Benfold in Yokosuka, was driving his family back from a trip to Mount Fuji in May of 2021 when he fell unconscious. Two Japanese nationals died in the resulting wreck. No one alleges drugs or alcohol were involved. Lieutenant Alconis is a Mormon. He doesn't drink. His wife and young children were in the car in broad daylight. Jonathan Franks, a spokesman for the family, says a Navy neurologist said that Alconis had suffered acute mountain sickness. The tragedy has cascaded into a larger fiasco. Lieutenant Alconis was arrested and held in solitary confinement for more than three weeks, his family says. He wasn't given a medical exam that might have exonerated him. Alconis pleaded guilty to charges of negligent driving on the hope that he would receive a suspended sentence. Alconis has no criminal history and served multiple tours in Japan without incident. He also spent two years in Japan on a Mormon mission, teaching free English classes and doing other volunteer work. He has repeatedly expressed remorse, paying $1.65 million in restitution to the families of the victims, a significant sum cobbled together from insurance, savings, and donations from friends and family. Junior officers aren't paid handsomely, and Lieutenant Alconis is the son of a California fire chief. His wife, Brittany, devotes her time to raising their three children. A Japanese judge nonetheless sentenced Lieutenant Alconis to three years in prison, which he began serving in July. His pay and benefits were set to lapse in December. Utah Senator Mike Lee, who has visited Alconis in prison, prodded the Pentagon to make an exception so the officer's family wouldn't lose the household income and health insurance. Mr. Lee ended up forcing the Biden administration's hand by attaching an amendment to the omnibus spending bill that requires the Pentagon to keep paying Lieutenant Alconis. It passed by voice vote. This editorial concludes, military officers don't have license to behave with impunity, and crimes by U.S. personnel on Okinawa have eroded Japanese support for hosting U.S. troops. The Pentagon is no doubt nervous about the fragile politics, but also in decline is U.S. public support for stationing troops around the world, and Americans see in this case a U.S. officer treated unfairly by a country he was helping to defend. Alconis has served several months of his sentence, hardly light punishment. And Tokyo would be wise to seek a swift end to this episode and return him to U.S. custody. U.S. lawmakers will continue to press the case and better to solve this between allies before it becomes a bigger bilateral irritant. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida visits Washington this week at an important bilateral moment. President Biden can help by asking the Japanese delegation to bring the American lieutenant with them 
when they come to town. The facts of this case, some of the details I just learned today reading this story, I think are outrageous. An ally should not be treating a U.S. service member this way. He did not commit an intentional crime. He did not behave irresponsibly. It was an accident. It was an accident involving an upstanding citizen with a spotless record and a young family. It is a travesty of justice for this American to remain behind bars anywhere. We have enough Americans unjustly imprisoned in hostile countries. Japan isn't one of those hostile countries. Bravo to our friend Mike Lee for sticking with this story and to other members of Congress in both parties who are focused on it. And I think the journal is right that President Biden should also insert himself into this, use the prestige and the power of the presidency to make this right. And I think maybe that only happens if more pressure builds, which is why I wanted you to hear it here on these airwaves as well. The Guy Benson Show taking a quick break. When we come back, Martha McCallum joins us in studio here in New York. Stay tuned. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through this Monday edition of the Guy Benson Show in New York. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast free every day when the show is over. And with us here in studio in the Big Apple, our friend, our colleague, Martha McCallum, executive editor and anchor of The Story. Every weekday, Fox News, 3 p.m. Eastern. Also, Fox News Politics co-anchor, author of the bestseller, Unknown Valor. She's got a podcast, The Untold Story, with Martha McCallum foxnewspodcast.com. It is great to see you, Martha. Great to see you too, Guy. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We love it when you come to New York, so thanks for having me. It is our pleasure to have you here, and I want to start with a story that you and I both covered extensively last week, which was all the chaos leading up to, finally, on ballot number 15, Kevin McCarthy becoming Speaker of the House at long last. Often in our politics in the modern era, a lot of stuff is scripted, sort of preordained. There's a lot of theater and it's not real. This was sort of genuine chaos. Mm -hmm. And I was frustrated by some of it. I was intrigued by some of it. It was resolved very, very late Friday night, bleeding into Saturday morning. But in your experience covering politics, where does this one rank? I mean, it was a pretty interesting series of days. Yeah. I mean, as a reporter covering politics, I this is fantastic, right? right? I mean, this was so <laughs> interesting. And I was on the phone, you know, in touch with a bunch of different people on Capitol Hill. And what I loved was that none of them knew how it was going to turn out. None, none of them, you know? I was like, wait, where's the story going? And generally people will say, you know, sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. But, you know, oh, this is just all theater. It's all going to end up like this. That wasn't happening. And I loved, I have to say, I love that. I'm sure Kevin McCarthy didn't love it. I'm sure it caused him uh, perhaps some sleepless nights, but it took a few days and he is Speaker of the House, which he's been, has been his goal and vision and dream for a very long time. So he got to hold that gavel on Friday night. I think people will forget about it quickly and move on to the business at hand, which could also end up looking very much like some of what we saw. What I liked about it, though, is that I felt that the American people, if they were paying attention, kind of got to know Congress a little bit better. They got to see some of their representatives in action and hold them accountable for why they were either obstructing or going along with the votes. 
And we also are going to see, I think, a better process play out. I am very disturbed by the debt in this country and the lack of fiscal responsibility. And I say that just as an American. I think it's an objective viewpoint. I don't think it's a political viewpoint. I think there are people on both sides who are very disturbed by how much money gets spent in Washington. And once they sign these bills, they don't really seem to care a whole lot about where that money goes or follow that money or or hold people accountable. And so, they almost like forget where it comes from. Absolutely. Right. It It is treated far too often as magic money that yeah. grows on the magic DC tree. Yeah, a few more billion for that. To be played with and argued over and postured over, but it's coming from us. Yes. And we spend way more of it than we have. That's very yeah. bad and ultimately unsustainable. Now, whether these new processes actually make that any better in a real way, I don't know. I think there'll probably be some improvements. Some things might get worse, frankly. Mm-hmm. We'll see. But before we get into like the moving forward part of it, I think you're right just from not even the entertainment perspective, but the news value of something, the sense of almost novelty where even the people most closely involved in it truly did not know what was going to happen. Like I was on as a guest on a couple shows last week on TV and, you know, the host would ask me something like, Who's going to get it? Like, how's this going to play out? And I just had to be honest and say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I know I'm paid to sort of come out and have a take and a perspective, but I felt almost like I could be forgiven for saying I don't know because I was absolutely confident that Kevin McCarthy, for instance, had no idea ultimately what was going to happen or not. And I was getting interesting texts. I'm sure you were as well from some folks behind the scenes who were maybe starting to go a little bit wobbly on Kevin McCarthy. It was... On a nice edge there for a while where if a domino had fallen in the other direction, it could have ended very differently. Let's put it that way. And publicly, all the McCarthy supporters never backed down. They stuck together, which I think is to his credit. But it could have definitely played out differently. I don't know if you were getting those same kinds of texts. Absolutely, it could have. And and I think the only person who sort of kept his confidence throughout, at least outwardly, was Kevin McCarthy. He said it might take a while. Don't, you know, don't pay attention to today's vote, but we're getting there. And that ended up to be true. You know, they were obviously wheeling and dealing behind the scenes and promising people different spots on committees and all of that. Um, And I but I think that the people who at least are arguing for some more fiscal responsibility, which I do think was the major issue that they had. Personalities aside, personalities aside for some of them. Um, And and I think that 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 issue won something. On Friday night, and we'll see how it plays out, you know, but I, th- I think they're going to try to force them to break these bills down into 12 separate appropriations bills. Regular And I order. think members of Congress should be able to argue on the amendments and on these these pieces of the budget. This is important. This is the work of Congress. They have the power of the purse. And I think a lot of the members feel like they have zero power. None. They're told what to vote for. Show up and vote for this. If you want to be on a committee, you better do it our way. And that's the way Washington works. That's why good people end up leaving very quickly because they feel frustrated that they can't get anything done. And um, I think once you if, – if you can get back to some regular order, I think you will empower some of these individuals and it will force them to uh, to do their job. When we start to speculate about how the next two years might play out, I tend to agree with you that it's possible that last week – might be a distant memory awfully soon, right? I don't think that many Americans were 
on the brink of a hunger strike if we didn't have a Speaker of the House. And there was some kind of breathlessness in the news media and like, isn't this a national crisis? I was like, let's tap the brakes on that a little bit. I, I didn't love everything that happened. I wish it had been a little bit more orderly for various reasons, but it wasn't something that was deeply bothering me. And it could just end up being sort of an artifact of the moment soon. Or if the Republicans cannot figure out how to govern and how to stick together, and we now see sequels Mm -hmm. to the dysfunction over and over again, then I think people will remember how it started as a prelude to everything else. I don't know if there's a perfect answer to what's going to come next, but I'm at least somewhat hopeful that the Republicans, having gone through this on all sides of it, recognize when the chips are down, you have to figure out a way to get together or you're going to lose. And the Democrats figured that out pretty early when they took the majority back. Republicans had a few tricks up their sleeve to try to gum up the works. They did so once or twice. And then Pelosi got everyone together on her side and said, we cannot vote for these motions to recommit from the Republicans. It might be tempting based on the way that they're doing it to pick you guys off one by one. We have to stick together together. They got the message, and they, from my perspective, unfortunately, had a pretty productive two years because of it. Will Republicans learn that lesson with the same exact size majority? I don't know, but I have some doubts. Well, I do think Nancy Pelosi was very effective in wrangling her members. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and so that's to her credit. I also think, though, that the that the philosophy and the politics of her party – have really gone further and further left, and they've all moved that way, really, as an as a large entity, right? So they don't have moderates who are really pushing them towards, you know, fiscal responsibility, which used to exist in the Democrat Party. But I think that they have become very monolithic in their belief system that more bigger government is better for the country. So although they have the squad and they have progressives who are at the further right end of their of their group, I think they've all moved further in that direction of larger, bigger government, yep. enormous spending. So that and I even think on is, social issues, yes. they, they have slid oh, absolutely. left. Absolutely, you know, um, you know, my family on my mother's side were Boston Democrats for generations, but I don't know that they would recognize uh, the party that they were part of for all of those years. And even when you think about you know JFK in terms of defense and. Uh, fiscal responsibility. It, the, the party has changed a lot and, you know, love it or hate it, you know, whatever side you're on. I think that's a I think you can make a, a very solid argument on that. So I think Republicans do have a more diverse politically political thought mm-hmm. uh, and actually a more diverse body than they did before. Um, and with Democrats, so they're going to continue to have some of these issues, I think. But I, I don't think it's unhealthy. I mostly agree with that. I would just say with the Democrats, when you kind of say you're trying to get everyone you know, back marching together, you can ask someone, OK, what's your price? And with Democrats, they're like, you know, money, literally, mm-hmm. you know, money for the district, money for some priority. With Republicans, some of them, it's like the opposite direction. I want cuts here. I want processes changed there. I do sort of wonder if the squad in particular had any chaos envy watching this all play out, saying like we actually had mm-hmm. the power to do mm-hmm. this and we really never did. They would bark and squ- you know, squawk a little bit. But Pelosi got him in line. They all fell in line. They were, you know, much louder bark than bite. I wonder watching and for the next two years, maybe watching some disruption on the right, 
if some of the harder line folks on the extreme left in the Democrat conference, if they get power back and it's close at some point, if they might remember this stuff and watch it play out in the but future. But what do they want that they're not getting? That, that I think, is the key point. And I that think they're goes, getting what they want. That's right. Even under a supposedly moderate presidential administration, right? So I think that underscores the point that you just made about where the Democrats are right now politically. Martha McCallum, let's talk about the Royals. Let's do it right after this break. Guy Benson will be right back. Martha McCallum with us here on The Guy Benson Show. Let's shift to a different form of drama, something that I don't really follow that closely, except it's just in my face constantly, <laughs> headlines, social media, Harry and Meghan. And I, you cover the royals, and you have for years very closely. I haven't had a huge dog in the fight or whatever. I've mostly kind of ignored it. I admired and respected the queen, who, of course, passed away. The sons, you know, the you know the line of succession or whatever, like, I, it's like, fine. Whoever, it's Charles, then it'll be William. I wish them all the best. It's just not something that I am passionate about. However, in the last couple of weeks, I have to admit, I have gotten increasingly hostile to Harry and Meghan, mostly because out of one side of their mouth, and this has been going on now for, what, more than a year, but out of one side of their collective mouth, they talk about how they're basically aggrieved victims and they just want their privacy and they just needed to get out of that relentless crushing spotlight and limelight in the royal family and just live their lives together. But then they want all these breaks from their privacy where they want us to buy their books and watch their interviews and watch their Netflix specials where it's just a constant drumbeat of complaining, stories coming out that we've never heard before, some of which I think sort of strain credulity a little bit. I just wonder, as someone who watches this stuff much more closely and intently than I do, is this different? Is there something changing, or has this been the dynamic here for a while? Well, you know, what, what disturbs me the most is that they're they're essentially saying that the family, the royal family, is transactional, right? That they're willing to, to save their own skin or to get the British press to write something favorable about them, that they were pushing negative stories about Meghan and Harry in order to elevate themselves, right? And... So now they are living in an enormously transactional world. They have been paid between 100 and $200 million by these different entities. And these folks want, they want goods, right? They're not happy. They don't want to hear about, you know, your self-help book or your children's book, which they had to basically derail that Megan was writing. They want dirt. They're paying for dirt. So I ask you, how is it different than Thomas Markle, Megan's father, who she no longer speaks to because he sold a few photos to some of the American publications while he before the wedding of him reading books on England and things like that? She couldn't. She was so appalled. Couldn't believe it that her father would sell photos ahead of her wedding. OK, so I'm trying to figure out what is so different and in many ways, more egregious, the way that they are throwing their family under the bus, then out of the other side of Harry's mouth, he's saying he'd love to repair the relationship, but you can't do it until you put everything out there. This is like, you know, if, if you and your brother got into a fist fight and you're in your 30s or 40s, are you going to be talking about that to reporters? Are you going to be sharing, you know, that you think that your father's wife who he's now been married to for 17 years, mm. um, is a villain who who's tried to destroy you. It's like, grow up. 
you know? And if they really wanted to have an impact on the world, they had probably the best platform you could possibly have. So, yes. That's you know. like, oh, it's, you know, he's such a victim. He, he was oh, still processing his mother's so death and all pathetic. this. Pathetic. Look, we've all gone through stuff in life. Of course. Some people more than others. He has gone through a few very tough things in his life. But Absolutely. also from that perch, with every opportunity and all the creature comforts of the monarchy and all of it, he decided to give it up. He went. I give him credit for serving in the armed forces, going Absolutely. to Afghanistan. There's a lot to admire there. He decided he's going to marry this American and do it for love. But whatever this has become is, to me, just exhausting. And it's gross. I and, and I don't more. really care. And the thing is, if it were true dirt, maybe I'd be maybe, I don't know, a tiny bit more interested. I don't really believe him. I feel like he's just like brainstorming. What can I build up into a scandalous nugget to put in a book? to sell books, to then tell in the tearful interview about, you know, how he's really the victim in all of this. Like, one of the few things I know about his past was the row over his Nazi uniform Halloween costume. And we find out years later, oh, actually, it was William and Kate's idea and their fault that he did it. It just all seems so convenient and ridiculous. And I wonder, like, is there a point where people finally lose an appetite? I think so. Because... Yeah, I do. At this point, I think they're making stuff up. They're estranged. They have no new dirt to tell. It's when they like, run out of dirt, they're going to run out of um, attention. They will have done the book. She also has a deal to write her own book. I know. Uh, eventually, you know, I, I think it's sad. I think there's something pathetic about it. I, I you know, look, there's, there's no, you know, I'm sure both sides have made mistakes. That's usually the way it is sure. in family situations. Um, and I, I think he's really, you know, if he, he says, oh, I really would like to rebuild my relationship with my husband, with oh, my brother and my father. I mean, oh my God. I mean, you know, Patty Davis, I thought was so interesting. She wrote a piece, Ronald Reagan's daughter about how she really regrets writing a book where she trashed her family when she was in pain and she wanted to hurt them. And she said, if I could just tell him one thing, it would be just be quiet for now. And see how you feel about this several years down the road. It's way too late for that. And she had to go back to her father when he was declining in health and apologize and try to reconnect with him. And I thought that was very telling, very interesting. I think he will have some deep regrets probably down the road. I also think there's a lot more important stuff going on in the world yep. than their perceived injustices, uh, you know, and, and arguments. And, oh, just you know, constant, all constant of this grievance. Stuff. Get over it. You're not, you're, you were not first in line. You should probably be glad, right? I mean, you get all of the advantages. You don't hear this kind of whining from other members of the family, from Edward or Sophie or Beatrice or Eugene. You know, they, they go out and do their events. They have a, they have an amazing platform and and a great life in many ways. So if you want to opt out, opt out. Go yeah. live quietly in California. And if you want to work through some childhood trauma, you can do that in private as opposed to working it out in front of the entire universe. And I think it's probably good advice for him to just be quiet. And go work late. on himself, but it's too late, and I don't think he's capable of it. I think she is definitely incapable of it. I think he has it. a lot of his mother in him. She liked to throw bombs, too, yep. and she obviously had some difficult situations. But, you know, this, like, oversharing stuff is very, is very you know, 2021, 20, 22, 23. I've got to share my truth with everyone. It's like, really? I don't know. Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't. Maybe you should just keep it to yourself. Yeah, Maybe that would be better. Stow your truth. <laughs> keep, it, keep it your truth. Exactly. I don't need to hear it. Martha McCallum, it is so great to see you great face to, to see face you here in studio. The story every day at 3 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. 
We'll take a break. We'll come right back on The Guy Benson Show. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show on this Monday in New York City. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is the 5 to 6 p.m. hour, our final hour of three here on the program, Eastern Time, of course. We appreciate you being here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. That's our online home. Lots of goodies and content there every day, including the free podcast, the full show on demand for free. That's every single day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Delicious, refreshing, we recommend it. I love it. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where they're sold near you as they expand due to popular demand. TheLongDrink.com. Well, joining us here in studio up in New York, is our friend and colleague Bill Hemmer, co-anchor of America's Newsroom, every weekday, 9 to 11 Eastern, on Fox News each morning. I was on this morning with you guys, mm-hmm. Bill and Dana. It's good to see you again. Hey, thanks, Guy. Nice to see you, too. So, especially, especially in person. It's always good to be in New York and do these conversations face-to-face. It's funny. Our topic this morning on TV uh-huh. was the border yeah. and the president. Of course, we've talked about that here on the show. We had Jesse Tarloff in the sandbox to play a little bit on that issue But leading up to that segment, we were talking football on the air and during breaks as well. So I want to start there and maybe finish there with you, Frank. There's so much to get to. I think before you came on, we had Jim Kelly on from the Buffalo Bills. So I was sitting there at the desk while you were conducting that interview with that legendary quarterback up in Buffalo. I thought it was a really good interview and pretty emotional. Of course, he is one of the most famous faces of that franchise that has been under the microscope for this last week or so, given what happened a week ago tonight on Monday Night Football, you're a Bengals fan. We've talked yes, about this many times. But we'll get to the Bengals and their playoff chances yeah. in a bit. But I think the story about DeMar Hamlin and that extremely frightening incident was immediately the paramount story among sports fans in the country. It must have been sort of strange for you and for Bengals Nation to be rooting for the team that was playing against the Bills Mm -hmm. during that game. Just talk about that experience as a fan from your perspective. Yeah, I tell you, there's a a bar in New York City called Phoebe's, and it's on the Lower East Side. It's around 4th Street and Broadway. I think that's right. Maybe it's, yeah, I think around there, Lower East Side. And it's a Bengals bar. And so when the Bengals are on, you know, they, they put out the flag and they play the music and all the monitors are covered by the game. So a lot of people from Cincinnati tend to gravitate there. I had a niece in town for New Year's Eve and she stayed over. She and her boyfriend and a bunch of her friends from from back home. And they said, we're going to go watch the game. Where should we go? And I said, we got to go here. So we all meet there. And Guy, what a strange thing that was because mm-hmm. the Bengals came. They, they were they were balling and they came out ready to play. And they were moving. And when T. Higgins goes into DeMar, 
you can see him fall backwards. I thought it was a concussion. We're used to seeing guys make a play and then get up and being a little woozy and going back down again. He went flat on his back, mm-hmm. which cardiologists I've since learned over the past week would say, no, that's a heart condition. Well, I, I don't know. Would you know that? No. I, I, who would? Um, and then they cut away. And ESPN did this repeatedly. They come back from commercial, and they got the camera from 100 yards away, and they weren't telling us anything. Mm. And now we know that 66,000 people watch this guy get CPR on the field. Well, I, those, are, those are details that are important to understand what, what, what's happening there. So the game gets punted, essentially, um, which I think was real. It, it was a shame because DeMar notwithstanding, I thought the Bengals came to play. They had a really good chance well, to, win, and, and let me just to win that game. Jump in on that too, because we actually touched on this Friday just a little bit. Because thank God, literally, thank God that Demar Hamlin has had this miraculous recovery. The whole country is rooting for the guy. By the way, that never happens. You never, you don't go into cardiac arrest for a period of nine to twelve minutes, get CPR in a field, um, lose your pulse, get intubated, get an induced coma. And then wake up within three days and you're talking again. Yeah. That does not happen. This was a miracle in Cincinnati. Yep. With the prayers of a nation pouring in. Mm-hmm. And Jim Kelly talked about that too and the power of prayer. And he experienced that when he was fighting cancer in his own right. But on Friday, we mentioned this. There was, and I think understandably in the minutes and then hours and even few days after the incident itself – a skittishness about talking about the football component at all. You're exactly right. And I think that's right. If someone is perhaps going to die on the football field, the game just doesn't matter anymore. However, once it became clear that he hadn't died and there was improvement, I think a lot of people were still gun-shy about it. And I made the point, DeMar Hamlin gave everyone the permission slip to talk about football again, when he woke up and the first thing he communicated was wanting to know if the Bills had won. Yeah, amazing. He's a competitor. He wanted to know, did we win? Yeah. It's okay for sports fans to care about sports outcomes. Yeah. And once we saw the improvement, I think that was the moment where it was like, okay, back to football. They canceled the game, which has created certain controversies. Ultimately, in the scheme of things, it doesn't matter as much. The playoffs are now set. We'll get to that in a second. I just want to talk about, first of all, the Bengals fan base and the Bengals organization have gotten a huge amount of virtual applause and other commendations from the Bills organization, from DeMar's loved ones, just the the classiness of the fans. One anecdote that I read from someone who was in the stadium said, not a single person moved. No one left. It was silent. People were praying together. Cincinnati embraced the Bills, embraced Hamlin. I think that is a really good look for a city and a community, the way that it's been a great look for the people of Buffalo as well, the way that they've responded to this. That also has to be, in some ways, kind of a point of pride. When the chips are down, these cities did the right thing and rallied around someone and a family and a team that needed help. Yeah, they did the right thing at the moment. Uh, That UC Medical Center is phenomenal, too, Mm -hmm. by the way. The trauma center that takes care of so many people who go nameless, right? Uh, That was the same trauma center that took care of the Miami quarterback earlier in the season. 
when he was tackled on that field and had a second concussion of Tua from Miami. Yeah, yeah. He went to the same hospital. Five years ago, Ryan Chazier, the outstanding linebacker from Ohio State, who was a defensive stalwart for the Steelers, on pretty much of a benign hit on a tight end, I think it was, or maybe it was a receiver, on that field, he went to the same trauma center. That's three times in five years on night games in Cincinnati. Um, So I'm very proud of the community. I'm glad America got to see that side of the city. Mm -hmm. I think the city feels the same way. And likewise for Buffalo also. But I felt, Guy, a friend of mine said, you know, it's hard for me to care about. This was like Thursday of last week. It's hard for me to care about this because it was only one person in a massive league. And I said, you're not right, but you will be right on Saturday at 430 when the next game is played. Mm-hmm. And after that ball's kicked, everybody go back to the sport. And I, I think that's what we saw this past weekend. Yep, I think that's right. But given the green light by DeMar, the fact that he's sitting with his mom and dad, Zooming or doing a WhatsApp with the Buffalo Bills. I'm telling I mean, you that guys, photo of this, him doing the heart. Yeah, this, this doesn't happen. I grew up with a kid who got hit in the head with a softball at a family reunion. He was in the eighth grade. and um, He went into a coma for six months. He lived, he woke up, he's, you know, in his 40s now, he lives an independent life, and he has his challenges, but he's alive. You know, his family had a lot of faith throughout this, and he he survived. I know another buddy during the very beginning of COVID, he was on a treadmill here in New York City. He, they didn't get to him for 20 minutes, and he went into a coma for a year, and they, they had to make a really difficult decision. My point is, this stuff doesn't happen the way it happened over the past week. I, I can't emphasize it enough. Yeah, I'm calling these doctors and I say, can you give me an example of where somebody's forced into a coma, they bring their body temperature down, and then within 36 hours they're breathing on their own, and by the end of the week they're talking. It doesn't happen. I, I, I just, on Sunday morning on ESPN's NFL show, now I'm getting ready for the Bengals game, right? Um, Randy Moss is talking about the power of prayer. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's ever been spoken on that show before. I watch it a lot. And Rex Ryan, the former head coach, is crying. They got emotional. Yeah, it really. It was so touching. Also, um, how couldn't you get emotional? And, and I want to get to an incredible emotional moment in just a second. But, but first, because you just went through those three examples of those football players going to a trauma center because of football-induced trauma, you also asked your guest about this this morning, Jim Kelly, there are some people using this opportunity to come after football again, saying this is a dangerous sport. Some people are bringing a racial aspect into it. And Jim Kelly could not have pushed back any harder on that. He said, we play this sport because we love it. He said, do I have some health challenges maybe because I played the sport? Yes. Would I do it over 100 times again? Every single time. And I just think when there is a freak incident in a contact sport or in a non-contact sport, by the way, It just feels exploitive for people to come in and try to basically rob agency from the men who strap on the helmet and put on the uniform every week. Yes, for our entertainment. They get handsomely compensated for it. We're football crazy country. I'm football crazy, especially on the college side. But no one is holding a gun to anyone's head to go play football. They love the game. And I'm all for doing things in a smart way and trying to maximize safety. It just bothers me when something that can't be avoided happens Mm -hmm. and people try to use that as a chance 
to like plunge the dagger into the game. It just, I think that's also a very ugly way to come at this just as focusing too much on football too soon and focusing, you know, on football fanaticism was also wrong. Yeah. I guess as a fan, what I would say to that is I'm amazed by the abilities of these men to do what they can do. Yeah. I feel like I'd be, I would be dead. Like I'd take one hit. I'd right. be like, all right. It's remarkable. And I, I get in these debates with my British friends and my Australian friends and they're all saying, but you're wearing pads. I said, you know why you're wearing pads? Because you would be dead if you did not. Mm-hmm. That's the level of contact they bring to the sport. Um, I think their physical ability is something that so millions and millions of people admire. And that's, this is our, it, it, it's not our version of Rome. I'm not going there, but it's it's our way of recognizing. Well, it's meritocracy. The, the, the talent that they bring to that playing field. Yes, they make and, the and, millions. And that's why it has become, I know you're wearing a New York Yankees hat, <laughs> but literally as I look at you now, um, that's why it's become America's sport. It's not baseball, and it's not soccer, and it's not basketball. It's the NFL. But also the reason that people follow sports and the reason that these athletes at the professional level, the most elite level, make the money that they do is because they possess gifts and talents that 99.99% of people only, don't. Only dream about. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. that's that's why it's part of the reason it's entertaining. If you just got a bunch of random people off the street, let's find 22 people, put them on a field and see what happens. <laughs> I ain't paying to watch that. I, I'm like, you know what? Can I tap out? Even if it's flag football, yeah. no thank you. I want to continue this conversation in just a second, but we're up on a break. Bill Hammer, our guest. It's the Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the happy hour picking up right where we left off with Bill Hammer, our guest. So yesterday, I'm in my hotel room because I was in town co-hosting on the news channel over the weekend. And I said, you know what? I'm going to turn on it's the early game. I'm going to turn on the Buffalo game just to see the, the oh, end of the wow. pregame show and watch the kickoff and just sort of get a sense of what things are looking like in that stadium, given what that fan base and team and city has gone through on behalf of this guy. And there was so much heartwarming stuff, and everyone came out with the number three and holding up three fingers and the crowd going crazy. The photo of DeMar just you know, took my breath away. And then the opening mm-hmm. kickoff goes to the Buffalo Bills. It is the first play of football that any of them have engaged in since their teammate almost died. Yeah. And they run the damn thing back for a touchdown. Yeah, I could not. Yeah. How can you not get chills? I'm getting chills <laughs> right. again. Yeah, It's amazing. And I think they asked Josh Allen, the quarterback for the Bills, after the game. I think he used the word magical. And he got a little choked up yet again. What I couldn't believe is that the Patriots actually hung in in that game and yeah. <laughs> had a chance to, to, to win toward the end. Which brings us to the postseason. And there we go. We're, now, we're, we're off into a new aspect of what I just called America's greatest game. I'm a Giants fan. Not like hardcore. I care more about college, as I said. But I'm glad they're in the playoffs. It's been a minute. Who do you like tonight, Georgia TCU? I was going to ask you my last question Got for it. you, Bill. Put it, Put it on the back burner. Georgia's given 12 and a half. The over-under is like 63 gazillion points. Since we're talking about it, so I would generally be rooting for TCU because they're the underdog. Uh-huh. They haven't been there before in Correct. this way. I like rooting for an underdog in that scenario. I generally root against the Southeastern Conference. I, you know, They would be, if the dogs win, it'd be a repeat for them. Also, TCU wears purple. My team wears purple. There's a few things going on here. However, my best friend, Mary Catherine Ham, is a 
diehard Bulldogs yeah, yes, fan. Yes, we have yes. another very close family friend, he and his wife, the Hickeys, diehard. So I've kind of adopted Georgia just a little bit because of them. I've uh-huh. been to games with them down in Athens. So weirdly, against all the odds, I'm rooting for Georgia to repeat. But if TCU somehow pulls this off, it'll be hard not to feel great for them yeah. tonight. I hope it's a good game. Uh, I'm cheering. The semifinals were surreal. Yeah, I'm cheering for TCU. I wanted Ohio State to be Georgia. I thought they got ripped off on a few calls, but that is behind great us. Great game. It was a great game. Uh, however, Big um, Ten guy. I was rooting I, for Ohio uh-huh. State and Michigan. I, I got you. I could have made that kick when the when the ball was snapping and the uh, and the other ball was dropping uh, at midnight. I mean, yep. remarkable stuff. I'm going with the Horn Frogs from TCU tonight. You're, root, you're rooting for them. I'm or rooting, you're picking. Them? I'm rooting for them. I will cheer for them. If you want to give me the points, I'll gladly take 12 and a half. I think Georgia's got the edge in this game. Yeah. But I will cheer for the underdog. Yep. And that's, you could not have predicted either of the semifinal games the way that they went down. Wild, wild games. So that's why they play them. And I'll be watching tonight for sure. I'm getting on the train to get back to D.C. to at least see the second half of the ultimate challenge in college football. Briefly, Bill Hammer, yes. NFL playoffs. Bengals had a bit of a wonky start to the season. We talked about uh-huh. it on the air. They've yes. really corrected course. How are you feeling? You were telling me on the TV studio earlier, off the air, you think this is a wide-open playoff. Uh, I think the postseason is wide open. Here's what I will say to you. Um, the Bengals are waiting for some big news on the right guard. He's probably their best-performing offensive lineman. He got rolled on yesterday on his left ankle. His name is Alex Kappa. Mm. He played for Brady for three years. He's been a standout for us this year we cannot afford to lose him for this game if I were the head coach at Cincinnati the two teams I'd be concerned with the most now Buffalo's great Kansas City's great however I think the Chargers Mm. and the 49ers have the best defense at this point right going into the postseason So you're looking west I'm looking west for a team and Look, I'm never going to turn my back on my team, but I will never predict victory until I'm actually at the actual game. Wild card weekend, even not as a huge NFL guy, wild card weekend is fun. It's on tap, but we've got college tonight. Uh Uh-huh. Big game out in Los Angeles. We'll both be watching. Bill Hammer, always great to see you. He's the co-anchor of America's Newsroom every morning on Fox News Channel, along with the lovely and talented Dana Perino. And Bill, we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Guy. The Guy Benson Show, back right after this. We're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show happy hour. In our first hour today, a lot of border crisis talk for all the obvious reasons, including the president's visit finally to the border over the weekend. We caught up with Brandon Judd, president of the National Border Council, to talk about it. Here's a piece of that discussion. I just want to start with your big picture reaction to President Biden's border visit yesterday. I know this was highly anticipated. People had been demanding it for two years. Uh, now, finally, he's at least been down there. I know that there were a number of reasons to be skeptical or cynical about what would actually come out of this. What are your top line reactions? No, it was just politics. That's all it was. Unfortunately, he went down there to a sanitized uh, area. Uh, they, they cleared out everything that was going on. He didn't get to see what was what was happening. And then on top of that, he went to the port of entry. We're not having issues at the port of entry. There are three major law enforcement components within CBP. You've got OFO, the Office of Field Operations. They're the ones that operate at the port of entry. Then you've got the Border Patrol. We're the ones that operate between the ports of entry. And then you've got Air and Marine. 
Um, and they're the ones that, that fly um, our helicopters, drones, um, uh, aircraft, and then patrol the waters. He didn't even meet with Aaron Marine. He spent very, very little time with uh, Border Patrol, and he spent his va- the vast majority of the time at the port of entry. The port of entry is not where the problem is. That's not where we're seeing the issue. It's between the ports of entry. It's with the Border Patrol and AMO, yet he didn't even spend the time that was necessary to see it. And then on top of that, they cleared everything out. Uh, that's, that's a problem. When that happens, you know there's not going to be the political will to, to implement the policies, programs, and operations that are necessary to end this chaos. Well, we knew that already because of their policies, and they're not going to come off of some of these failures because for political reasons they feel like they can't. My hope was that even if by accident, even if they tried to insulate the guy as much as possible from any of the harshest realities down there, that they would be unavoidable to some extent. And someone or someones would have a serious conversation with him about what they're experiencing day in and day out. And whether that had a lasting impression or triggered any sort of changes at all, you know, maybe not, but he needed to hear it. Do you think there's a chance some of that happened? I did see a few images uh, images of him, the president, standing with Border Patrol agents in uniform. Is there maybe potentially some evidence that someone told him some hard truths while he was on the ground? Governor Abbott gave him some hard truths, but nobody else gave him that. And and the reason why I say that is because those individuals that were in uniform, those are high-level managers. Um, those people are subject to um, um, removal or movement from their, their current positions if they say something that is not politically correct. And that's that's the problem. When you look at – and we and everybody talks about how the FBI has become political. But the truth is, is that every organization within the federal government has be- become political, whether that's the IRS, the FBI, the Border Patrol, they're, they're, they've all become political because their highest level managers, they're subject to being taken out of their position and moved to another position if they don't tow um, an administration's line. And that's the problem with that. But yes, Governor Abbott absolutely gave it to him straight. What we were hoping for, what I was hoping for, I was hoping that that things weren't going to be cleared out, that, that the mainstream media, because if he when he went down there, he brought the mainstream media with My full interview with Brandon Judd of the National Border Council, which he leads, available online, GuyBensonShow.com. Part of that free podcast every day on demand, no charge to you, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch. Did producer Christine waver and or fall on her dry January ambitions over the weekend? Judgy Joyce, her mother, had a birthday party. She was tempted. We'll find out together right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Monday. Glad to have you all here. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day. We mentioned this earlier in the hour with Bill Hemmer. That tonight is the national championship game for college football. I'll be watching out at SoFi Stadium, Southern California, Los Angeles, Georgia Bulldogs and the Horn Frogs of TCU. And even though under most other circumstances, I'd be rooting for TCU because I'm best friends with Mary Catherine Ham, who bleeds Georgia red, I'll be pulling for the dogs. No offense to the TCU folks. And look, if an upset happens, an upset happens. And that's fun to watch. 
But this game comes on the heels of more excitement for Mary Catherine Hamm. I know some of you guys have followed her career for a long time. If you've been a Fox viewer for years, you remember her during her roughly decade tenure on the air here, often on the O'Reilly Factor. I think that was every week. Well, she has a new addition to her family. She just gave birth to her fourth child, her second with her husband, Steve. Her previous husband, Jake, had passed away. That's part of her story that you might or might not recall. You can look that up. She's written beautifully about it. But she's been married now to Steve since 2020, early 2020, and they have a daughter together and now a son. So welcome to the world, Cal, middle name John, which is named after Mary Catherine's father. And I'll just say that Mary Catherine and Steve would have been very, very thrilled, of course, with another daughter, but I think they are extra delighted that they now have a son. There's a lot of female energy in that house. And now Cal is there to provide some reinforcements to Steve. Cal was born just before midnight, I believe, on Friday. So on the 6th, late at night, she and I had this fun joke going back and forth all week. Are we going to have a speaker of the house first, or is this baby going to be born first? Because he was late. All her other kids were early. He was late. And every day we'd get on the phone at least once, sometimes twice or more. I'd say, no speaker, no baby. No speaker, no baby. And then we got a baby and a speaker in that order in the span of about an hour, late, 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 Friday into Saturday. So I am overjoyed for them. I can't wait to meet Cal at some point. And everyone's doing great. Everyone's healthy. And I just wanted to give that shout out uh, to my very dear friend, who also, by the way, does enjoy listening to The home stretch. She'll listen to the show on and off, given the news cycles, but I think she almost never misses an episode of Bonus Benson on the weekends. She wants to catch up on the nonsense, so she'll probably hear this, so I wanted to make sure that I got it in during a segment that she might actually hear. With that being said, I know that she listens to Bonus Benson on a regular basis, typically on weekends, because I get text messages that usually start with something like, oh, Christine... Or good grief, cookie. And I think that we might be in store for yet another one of those right now. Because on Friday's show, just a few days ago, we had sitting right here in studio across from me in New York City, our friend and colleague, Kat Timpf. We talked extensively about Dry January, which Kat is undertaking with her husband. She explained why. She explained her philosophy, the way that she's going about it. And I planned on just sort of having a quick throwaway question about dry January. And it turned into like a 10 or 12 minute conversation on that issue about her vape addiction and nicotine and then dry January and just different things that she's doing for her health. And it was, I think a really interesting segment because Christine, our producer here was also doing dry January. She tried last year. She made it 11 days in. She tried to pretend that was a success And then she, you know, fell off the train and began her alcohol consumption again. And I felt like Kat almost gave not a direct pep talk to Christine, but Christine seemed riveted to Kat's words. Like she was really taking in some of this wisdom from Kat. The concern was that Christine had her mother's birthday party over the weekend. And I was wondering if she could make it through a Judgy Joyce-centric celebration without drinking. Judgy Joyce doesn't drink, for the record, but some of the stress related to it 
might have caused Christine to slip. But I felt like this year might be different. Christine was listening to Kat. Christine seemed to have a more serious sense of purpose about Dry January. She had Bobby, her husband, on board. So, I mean, this would be the first of a string of moments of truth coming back from weekends. This is our first opportunity to have a moment of truth. The first post-weekend home stretch with producer Christine during her ambitions to execute a dry January. And Christine, how's it going? Christine's refusing to talk. She is holding out hard right now. I'm putting her mic on, but she's turning it right back off. She's refusing to talk right now. Well, Christine, this is part of the the deal here. You talked about this. You kind of beat the drum on dry January. You hyped this up. People are interested. America wants to know. You might even say some people are counting on you, on your inspiration, on your stick and your perseverance on this issue. They want to know how it's going. She's still refusing to talk. And if you recall, I did say there was a 0% chance she would last through her mom's birthday. You did party. say you did say zero. Yeah. And I gave her a higher chance than zero. I think I gave her like a one in five chance or maybe even a one in three chance. I had more faith in Christine. I've known her longer than you have, so I had a little bit more faith in her. And I'm sure that she has rewarded that faith and confidence. Right, Christine? All right, I'll talk. Ah, there she is. You got me. Yeah. <laughs> I held out for as long as I could. I was expecting we we're going to have to ask you 15 times and you'd finally answer. So... I did well, I I think. Um, there was a cocktail. Okay, I'm not. There was two Cosmos. I think I told you one, but there was two. And that's it. That's all I wait, had. Wait, hang on, hang on. You say there were two Cosmos in existence, or there were two Cosmos that you consumed? There were two Cosmos that I consumed on Saturday night. Okay. But, but. Hang on, nope. Fox News alert. Seven days. Well, she lasted seven days. Last year, you made it a week and a half, 11 days. This year, you were even worse. And you had not one but two cocktails. I sort of knew. I was trying to pull this out of you because I knew. And if you weren't going to talk, there's actually a text message from you, a confession. So it's not like pleading the fifth doesn't work when you've already confessed. So I was going to go to the text messages if necessary, but you were not fully forthcoming in the confession. There was a second cocktail. So Uh, it's over. Well, here's why even bother doing this. Why even say that you're trying when obviously you're not trying? Well, yes, I am. And you're um, not. You're not. I I mean, that was it. Nope. That on Saturday, like that's two cocktails. One cocktail breaks dry January. Correct. Two is like, eff it, we're and, going for it. And I roped Bobby into it as well. Oh, so you made him stumble too. Yeah, he had two cocktails as well. How did you do that? Um, Power of persuasion, saying that we should do this together if we're going to do it. But can I tell you something? I had just meant for Saturday night. I, I meant we were going back to dry January. I went shopping for a little bit yesterday, came back, and Bobby's sitting with a beer watching football. Yeah, no, it's over. And that's what he said. I said, no, 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 we're still doing it. No. It was just a little blip. No. Nope. It's over. So, you know, break open your finest box of mama's juice. We're done here. Seven days. Would you consider this a success? Because last year you called 11 days a success. 11 days was amazing. 
So I wouldn't say it's the success that I had last year. No, but I mean A for effort. No, by sure, definitely F. And can by you're the, putting the F in effort? Can I remind you of something? And by the way, there's two F's in effort, just like two cocktails. Can I just remind <laughs> you of something? In January of 2020, I attempted to do dry January, and do you remember what happened to me? I got very, very sick. Okay. If you want to use perhaps early COVID before we really knew it was coming, I think while I was on my honeymoon. Yes. As your excuse not to do dry January because alcohol needs to be in your system for you not to get very sick, if that's the argument, then don't pretend like you're going to do it. Well, I mean, it's just a thought, an afterthought. Like, I think the alcohol disinfects things in there. So, (laughs) no. It, it's possible, don't you think? That's All not right. how that like works. Like alcohol cleans yeah. things up a just, little bit. Thank you, doctor. Now, Dan, you are also someone attempting dry January. You believe that Christine had a 0% chance of succeeding. You were correct. Yes. Yeah, your, so- your low faith, your total lack of confidence in Christine has been totally vindicated. You were right. Did you stumble and fall the way that Christine did, or did you have some self-respect, some self-restraint? So I held strong, and my significant other, two hours after the show ended on Friday, was trying to convince me that it's a good idea that maybe we did enough. It was one week, six days. We should just go out for some drinks. And I was like, no, we're not. I'm holding strong. Wow. Mainly for the reason of the home stretch. Let's be honest. Question. Yes. Now that you've beaten her. Okay. Well, I mean. Oh, it's a, it's a blowout. So you beat- And also, I never stumbled. Saturday. You said I stumbled. There was no stumbling. Oh, you stumbled on the path to dry January. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. No, no. That's two cocktails is not enough to make you stumble that way. (laughs) You got a high, high tolerance. But Dan, now that you've beaten Christine for the purposes of these exact conversations, next Friday or this coming Friday, if your girlfriend's like, hey, why don't we get a drink? Do you have the satisfaction of beating Christine and now you can kind of move on? Or are you committed for the full month still? I'm committed to the full month. I'm ready to go. Yeah. I want to make her just look so bad. I want to go for the full month and just blow it out of the water. Yep. Let's do it. I mean, we're supposed to be best friends and that's (laughs) your goal is to make me look bad. I think sometimes I do it enough on my own. Don't you think? No, she doesn't need any help. I need to find motivation. So that's my motivation. Okay. Every day I want to have a beer or something like that. I'll be like, I have to make Christine look really bad in this. Just close your eyes and just picture a grinning cookie like a Cheshire cat with two, like she's got like the beer helmet on, except it's Cosmos with the straws coming directly into her mouth. That's what you envision to hold strong. Yep. Solidarity, I'm with you. I had a few drinks over the weekend, but I'm also not doing dry January. I had a much drier weekend than I did throughout December. Same. No, but I was not an announced dry January participant unlike you. I wonder if Quiet Wyatt indulged in much alcoholic drinking while he was over in the U.K. and in France. We'll have to ask him when he's back tomorrow. Why Why's been gone for a while? Christine is curious. So I think we know our topic for the home stretch tomorrow as well. And at some point, I got to tell you guys about the musical that I saw over the weekend here in New York. We're like running out of time. So that was on the rundown, but we've got to punt it, so to speak, until tomorrow or the next day. And there was something else, too, that you wanted to get into, wasn't there? 
Well, I just want to put it on the record, and I'm not, like, just, like, throwing Bob under the bus, but he broke just as quick as I did, and if he was, like, stronger about it, I think I wouldn't have broken. Yeah, but you were like Eve and Adam and Eve. You were the one with the, you know, fruit of the poison tree tempting him and pressuring him to do the wrong thing, and he did what Adam did from that biblical story. If you remember that from the Bible. Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. Um, well, I just so you know, I'm back on it. So, On the booze? No. We, we know. No. We know. No. <laughs> and, and the other topic that I now just remember that you also want to talk about was coming to the defense of Harry and Meghan. Now, we talked about with Martha McCallum earlier in the show. That should have been my tip off. When you were telling us that you were like in tears watching Harry, I'm like, oh, she's definitely drinking again. So we'll get into all of that in due course. Over the week as it unfolds on The Guy Benson Show, back in D.C. tomorrow. Thank you for listening and have a great night. Jesus drank wine, Cookie drinks Cosmos. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.